Well, this morning we are uh, one week before we start our sermon series in the Psalms. Jeff will be kicking that off next week, a sermon series in the Psalms. So for today, we have another self-contained sermon, sort of like last week. And uh, today we're going to be in a text in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we read about a, uh, one of my favorite texts, an event in the life of King David, where he shows kindness, mercy, and compassion to a man named Mephibosheth. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 9. Because we're parachute dropping into this text, just to give us a little bit of context before we read the passage, this is one of the highest points in the life of King David at this point. David is on the throne. Saul has been defeated. Saul, the king who David was at the throat with uh, for almost the entirety of the second half of 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant has been returned to Jerusalem. God has made his covenant with David a couple chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 7. So David is flying pretty high at this point in 2 Samuel, and uh, he shows incredible mercy and compassion to a man named Mephibosheth. So we're going to read this passage in just a second, but before we do, let's go to our God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the scriptures, that they speak to us, that you breathe in them, that you confront our predilections in the scriptures, you teach us, you show forth Jesus Christ, you mold and shape us in the process. And Lord, I pray that you would show forth the gospel in this text this morning, that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to faithfully proclaim the text, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through it, to show forth Jesus Christ, the true and better king, and that you would mold and shape each one of us according to the image of your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So 2 Samuel 9, verses, there's 13 verses, 1 through 13. Please follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul, to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all 
that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of our Lord. When the Protestant Reformation came to a head roughly 500 years ago in church history, one of the hallmarks, among others, things of the Reformation was the slogan sola gratia. Sola gratia, Latin phrase that means by grace alone. Sola gratia teaches that from start to finish, our salvation is a free gift of God, not earned by us in any part. Sola gratia assumes the thoroughgoing desperation of the human condition, not, of course, that we're as worse as we could be, but that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, just as Paul tells us in Ephesians. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. So LaGradia assumes then that if anyone or anything can pick us up out of the muck and mire of our desperate human condition and of our desperate standing before God, it has to be God and God alone. It's said before that sola gratia isn't merely unmerited favor, receiving something we didn't earn. It's demerited favor, receiving something in spite of our sins and ourselves. Sola gratia is a doctrine that I'm sure many of us have rightly come to know and love and embrace, as have I. But my question for us all to consider this morning is how deep does this embrace of sola gratia go? In other words, has this become merely a doctrine, sola gratia, assuming that you've heard of it, that we merely confess only to the extent that we embrace it as part of our Orthodox Reformed heritage? That, of course, is important but it doesn't go deep enough. Is sola gratia a doctrine that we rightly believe and confess that then permeates everything about the way we live and relate with God, ourselves, and others? In other words, do we live sola gratia each day of our lives? These are the questions before us this morning. And in the passage before us, we meet this man named Mephibosheth, a man who has gone through the ringer in more ways than one. And we see what happens when Mephibosheth is confronted with a sola gratia of a sort, when he's confronted by the grace and mercy and compassion of a king. Mephibosheth, and we'll look at the life of Mephibosheth in just a few minutes, but Mephibosheth, he's gone through the ringer. He's lost his family. He's lost his status. He's lost his wealth along with his health. And Mephibosheth is powerless to do anything about his situation. But in his humble estate, what we find is that King David, the king who's got everything going for him at the time, summons Mephibosheth and extends to Mephibosheth incredible grace and mercy. And it's in this text that we see the shape, the scope, the direction, and the impact of grace in one's life. And it, of course, mirrors the better king, the truer king that you and I have, the King Jesus Christ, who shows you and I incredible grace, mercy, and compassion. And what we'll see in this text are several things about grace, several things about sola gratia, if we want to put it that way. We'll see that grace begins, first and foremost, with the initiative of a king. 
Second is that grace embraces humility. Grace embraces us in our humble estate, just like Mephibosheth. And then third, grace leaves Mephibosheth and us forever hungry for our king. Grace doesn't just confront us once and leave us once. Grace confronts us each and every day and changes everything about the way that we relate with God, ourselves, and others. And we'll see how that plays itself out in this text and also in the life of Mephibosheth as the trajectory pushes forward into the rest of 2 Samuel. But first and foremost, grace begins with the initiative of a king. This passage opens with a curious question that without some context may leave us thinking that David simply woke up on the right side of the bed one morning and was, and was feeling particularly benevolent and just sort of asks, hmm, I'm feeling like I want to show kindness to somebody today. David asks in verse 1, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then a few verses later, David asks almost the very same question in verse 3. He says, is there not still someone, says this is Ziba, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now the first observation worth mentioning, I think, is that David is absolutely 100% committed to showing kindness and steadfast love to somebody of the house of Saul. The first question, although maybe David did just wake up one day and think that, well, it would be a nice idea to show kindness to somebody in the house of Saul, even if that was the case, what we find about the character of David and the character of the king in this passage is that David is absolutely committed to showing steadfast love to somebody from the house of Saul. I know that very often that I sometimes get, get pretty cool ministry visions where there's things that I really want to accomplish in ministry and I get carried away in thinking about what could be, but then I have no idea how to execute it and so it sort of falls to the wayside. I'm sure many of us are like that in one way or another. But what we find with David is David's a king who takes initiative. David has a vision. He wants to show kindness to somebody from the house of Saul. And so David takes the initiative to seek out Ziba, and then he seeks out Ziba so that he can find somebody from the house of Saul. David is a king who initiates, who goes through the necessary steps because he's absolutely committed to showing kindness or hesed to somebody from the house of Saul. So the question remains then, why? Why is David so committed to showing kindness to someone of the house of Saul? Why is this his vision and desire? You would think that a king who has everything, as we alluded to in the scriptural introduction, he's in the highest point of his life right now. You would think that a king that has everything would feel no need to reach out to other people. He's living large. He's living high. When have any of us, after all, woken up on the right side of our bed one morning and say, hmm, I'd like to show kindness to one of my enemies today? Probably not a thought that goes through our mind very much. So why does David ask this question? Well, I want to offer that there's two clues that help us answer this question of why David is disposed to show kindness to someone of the house of Saul. One, a linguistic clue, and one, a contextual clue. So first, there's a linguistic clue in the word that David uses when he says he desires to show kindness. That word kindness, as it's translated in the ESV, is the theologically rich Hebrew word hesed, or if I want to say it gagging, chesed. And you can all practice that in your own time if you choose to. Um, Sometimes this word in scripture is translated as steadfast love 
or covenant love. And in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, for example, we come across this rich text that talks about the character and the person of God. And this text in Exodus tells us, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping hesed for thousands. So hesed is at the heart of who God is, and it's central to how God himself relates to his covenant people. So as such, hesed is covenantal language. It's what we might call covenantal love or covenant love. And if you're not sure what a covenant is, because we in Presbyterian circles tend to throw around the term covenant quite often, I'll define it in a second, so just hang with me for a moment. But this is the kind of love, the same love that's at the heart of God's character. That's the same type of love that David desires to show to Mephibosheth. Second clue, the second clue for why David asks the question he does in 2 Samuel 9.1 is given immediately at the end of the question he asks, where he says, I want to show Hesed for Jonathan's sake. In other words, he's moved to act with covenant love based on a covenant that David had made earlier in his life with Jonathan. Now, because we haven't walked through the book of 2 Samuel, it would probably be appropriate to give a little bit of background into who Jonathan is and sort of the relationship and the dynamic between David and Jonathan. So by quick review, Jonathan was the son of Saul, who was the king of Israel, who was at the throat of David for a number of years. But whereas Saul was at the throat of David for a number of years, Jonathan loved David. Jonathan recognized David for who he was as God's anointed, and as such, David and Jonathan developed a deep and lasting friendship. We're told in 1 Samuel 18, for instance, that their friendship is so close that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So again, David and Jonathan are, have developed a deep and lasting and abiding friendship with one another. And as a result, they make a covenant with one another to that end a few chapters later. Now again, a covenant, I said I'd define it. If you're unfamiliar with the term, a covenant is very simply a binding agreement between two parties based on a promise. And earlier in David and Jonathan's life, David and Jonathan make a promise with one another. They make an agreement with, un, with one another based on the promise that David will show hesed he will show kindness to Jonathan and will show kindness to Jonathan's entire household. So the reason then that David in our passage is so disposed to show hesed, to show covenant love to someone from the house of Saul is because of the covenant David made with Jonathan in 1 Samuel. The king initiates, King David initiates because of the covenant. The question David asks then in verse 1 has little to do, at least initially, with how David feels about Mephibosheth's plight. There's good reason to believe that as this passage opens in 2 Samuel 9, that David has never even heard of Mephibosheth. He doesn't even know who he is. There's very good reason to believe that, which is why he calls Ziba and asks, who is still alive from the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him? David, as we'll see in a moment, David does eventually empathize with Mephibosheth, but that's not what initially prompts the question. What initially prompts the question is the covenant. David initiates and acts for the sake of his promises, for the sake of his covenant. And so too does our God. Another illustration, so to speak, from Exodus. 
In the first two chapters of Exodus, if you've ever read through Exodus, in the beginning of Exodus, we learn that Israel is, uh, they're in a hard time, right? They're in slavery in Egypt. Things aren't going their way. They're having to carry heavy burdens to build up Pharaoh's empire. Then in chapter two, we learn a little bit about Moses and who Moses is. And we see foreshadowed in the Moses narrative of chapter two, how Moses is going to be that savior that God uses to get Israel out of out of Egypt. But at the end of that cycle, at the end of chapter 2 of, uh, of Exodus, we read a really interesting text. It says that during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So friends, just as David shows Hesed from Mephibosheth, initiating towards him through and through on the basis of a covenant, so too God initiates with his people on the basis of a covenant. David heaps love and honor on Mephibosheth, not because of anything he did, but because of Jonathan, right? God saves Israel out of Egypt, not because of anything that Israel was doing well at that point, doing pretty poor at that point, but because of another, because of Abraham, because of Isaac, and because of Jacob. And friends, in the same way, God intercedes for you and I on the basis of another, on the basis of Jesus Christ. The remarkable thing then about grace is that it doesn't depend on what you and I bring to the table doesn't depend on our merits or our demerits. It depends solely on the merits of another and is certified by the promise of God himself. You know, Paul Tripp has said before that one of the chief sins of modern Christianity is one of forgetting. How often do we forget the promises of God and that God is working each and every day, sometimes under the hood when we don't even see it and we don't even expect it. God is working each and every day for the sake of his promises, for the sake of his covenant in Jesus Christ. But we forget so often, don't we? The depths and the mercy and the compassion of our God. Very often, if we've been Christians for some time, we forget how how amazing the the tones of grace were to our hearts when we first believed. And we go on in our lives and we begin to try to justify ourselves through other means or how good we are or moral. And we end up even judging other people by the same set of criteria. And in the process, we forget grace. We forget the initiative of our king. We forget how he poured out grace and mercy and compassion on people like us. And in the process, friends, we redefine grace itself. But when we see grace for what it really is, when we see grace as unmerited initiative of a king on the basis of what someone else has accomplished, anything we're prone to hold before our God as justification of our worth is shaft. And that's only if we come to that place where we have any hope of showing grace to others. So my question for us is, do we long, like David, to show the grace and kindness of God to our neighbors? Because we have been initiated to in Christ by our King. Do we long to show the grace and mercy and compassion and initiate to our neighbors in grace and mercy, just like David initiates to Mephibosheth? This leads to our second point. Second, grace embraces humility. 
So I want us to stop for a moment and empathize a little bit with Mephibosheth and his plight. Consider, for example, where Mephibosheth is coming from. First, when Ziba introduces this son of Jonathan, and this is a significant point leading off, is it significant that Ziba never even mentions that Mephibosheth is a person. Ziba never even names Mephibosheth. And that's a, a hint, something for us to pick up on, because it reveals something about the character of Ziba that will really come to fruition a little bit later. But Ziba doesn't even honor Mephibosheth by naming him. It takes David honoring him to name Mephibosheth. So that's the first thing. When he comes to, uh, when Ziba introduces this son of, of Jonathan, what we find is the, in the first passage is that he's crippled in his both feet. And uh, a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 4, if we looked earlier in the context of 2 Samuel, we would learn why he's crippled in his feet. Apparently the text tells us that when, uh, when Mephibosheth was five years old, the news reached back home that his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, had died. They've died in battle. And so as a result, the nurse who is caring for Mephibosheth has to hurry out and take Mephibosheth out of the house. And as a result of hurrying and making haste, she drops Mephibosheth and he falls and he becomes lame in both of his feet. So Mephibosheth is carrying around not only a physical handicap, but he's carrying around the physical handicap that reminds him each and every day he gets up of the loss of his father and grandfather. It's like a scar that he carries around each and every day. And I can't help but think of Harry Potter for a second. Harry Potter and the, the, what is the lightning bolt he has on his forehead as a persistent reminder of the loss of his family, right? So in the same way, Mephibosheth is carrying around this shame with him and this deep abiding loss every time he considers his own plight. So that's the first thing. Second, together with the loss of his health and the loss of his family, Mephibosheth also lost his status. David's now on the throne and Mephibosheth is no longer heir to the throne. Next, when Ziba provides further detail about this son of Jonathan, he tells David that, that uh, Mephibosheth has been residing in this backwater town called Lodabar, which translated loosely means nowheresville. So he's handicapped, he lost everything, and he lives in nowheresville. I'm sure we could correlate that to some other backwater towns, but I don't want to offend anybody. So uh, he's from Nowheresville. And to make matters worse, Mephibosheth has no idea why he's being summoned to the king. But Mephibosheth probably understands what typically happens in situations like this. Keep, that, keep in mind that when a new dynasty takes control, what typically happens to all the members of the old dynasty? Al did it, yeah. They get, you know, one-offed, Right. And that's probably what's going through Mephibosheth's mind when he comes to David. Uh, this encounter then is an encounter of contrasts. David has everything. He has the throne. At this point, at least in the narrative, he has a vibrant walk with God. Now we'll learn very quickly that that you know, takes a, a quick downfall. But at this point, he at least has a vibrant walk with God. He's flying high. And Mephibosheth has absolutely nothing. It's a contrast, isn't it? He has nothing to offer the king. He has no wealth. He has no skilled labor. He can't even work. He's got no reputation. If anything, Mephibosheth is an absolute drain on resources more than anything else. And when I just think of this exchange, just stopping for a moment and thinking about what's going on here, I can't help but think of the character Jean Valjean from Victor Hugo's novel and subsequent musical, Les Miserables. I know this is probably one of the most overused illustrations and sermons, but I'm going to use it anyway uh, with boldness and clarity. 
what happens if you're unfamiliar with a musical or book is when, the, uh, when it opens up, we meet this character, Jean Valjean, who's a newly paroled criminal. Um, uh, he's been a pr in prison or a prisoner for, I think, 19 years or so. Uh, this musical or book takes place in 19th century France, just to give you some context to it. And Jean Valjean quickly realizes that the paroled life is maybe just as bad, if not slightly better, than his life as a prisoner. As an ex-convict, first of all, he can't find work. So as a result, he's not able to eat. And as a result, he doesn't even have shelter either. So he's learning very quickly what a hard life and what a humble estate that he himself is in. But one night, he meets this bishop, this meek bishop, who takes Jean Valjean off the street and gives him food. He gives him shelter. He gives him rest. He honors Jean Valjean by eating and dining with him at the table. But then that same night when everybody's asleep, Jean Valjean runs to the valuables on the house and he steals silverware and anything else of value and he bolts into the dark of night. Well, the sun comes up in the morning and the authorities drag Jean Valjean back to the bishop's house and they tell the bishop, we found this criminal and he said that you gave him all of this stuff. But clearly he's an ex-convict, he's a criminal, you didn't give him all of this stuff. And the bishop says, well, of course I gave him all of that stuff. And then he turns to Jean Valjean and says, but son, you forgot the candlesticks too. And he heaps upon him even more than he could expect. So the authorities depart and Jean Valjean is, is stunned at the grace and mercy that he was shown. And there's a quick exchange between the two, between the bishop and Jean Valjean. And we read this one line or hear this one line where the bishop turns to Jean Valjean and says, I have saved your soul for God. Now, I'm sure some of you literary critics are going to come up and tell me that I misinterpreted this afterwards, and so feel free to do that. But what I think, at least, he's saying here is that just as much as I showed you grace, our God has shown far more grace to us in Jesus Christ. And friends, this is a picture of grace that we also see in how David treats Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth comes before the king, the first thing he does is he falls down on his face and he pays homage. Note again the subtle contrast between Ziba and Mephibosheth. When Ziba comes before the king, Ziba stands upright before the king. Ziba feels no, feel, doesn't feel compelled to bow before the king, but Mephibosheth does. Mephibosheth bows before the king, and it's probably at this point where Mephibosheth thinks he knows what's coming next. It's, he's on his knees, and on his knees is where he's going to die. The sword's going to come over him. But immediately, what does David do? He says, do not fear. Sort of almost like the angels, right? When they approach, uh, when they approach the shepherds in the field and they say, do not fear. Do not fear. King David here knows what Mephibosheth is probably thinking, which is why his first thought, his first words are, do not fear, Mephibosheth. And then David names Mephibosheth, again, something that Ziba failed to do. Because in the eyes of somebody like Ziba, Mephibosheth in the house of Saul is old news. There's nothing Mephibosheth can do for him. And in fact, by David honoring Mephibosheth and by giving him some of the estate of Saul, David is actually taking away from what Ziba thinks is his, is rightfully his at this point. So Ziba, of course, is not going to like Mephibosheth very well. But by naming Mephibosheth, as others note, I think Liam Gallagher notes this, PCA pastor, David shows honor and dignity and worth to Mephibosheth. And then, of course, David invites Mephibosheth to perpetually sit at his table, to sit in the presence of a king. 
This is a true rags-to-riches story, but it's a rags-to-riches story because David, the king, has initiated, and he's pulled Mephibosheth out of the muck and mire of his condition, and he's honored Mephibosheth, something that he wasn't expecting, something that nobody has done for him. The king and the grace and mercy of a king is what Mephibosheth encounters. So my question for us, in light of Mephibosheth's plight, is friends, how do you see yourself? Because in reality, we're all like Mephibosheth, aren't we? We're all like Jean Valjean, in that we're absolutely desperate for grace. Without the grace and mercy of our king, we have absolutely no hope. We have no ground to stand on other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all we can offer to our God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have nothing to stand on on our own. So do you see yourselves in that light first and foremost? This passage, especially in this subtle Mephibosheth-Ziba contrast, reminded me this week when I was going through and studying this passage of a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, known as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, just to summarize the parable, if you're unfamiliar with it, Jesus tells this parable where a tax collector and a Pharisee, they both went to the temple to pray. But whereas the Pharisee stands before God and he recounts before God all that he has done, And he thanks God that God didn't make him like other men, like this tax collector. How does the tax collector pray? Well, the tax collector prays this. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to the heavens, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Friends, when we stand before our God and our King, that's all we have to offer. That's all we have to stand on. Do you see your humble estate, in the same way Mephibosheth sees him and his, in the same way Jean Valjean sees his. There's also something intriguing in this passage that um, Liam Golliger, a PCA pastor, pointed out this week in my studies that I thought was fascinating. And that is that this passage, even as we see the grace and mercy of a king, we see the grace and mercy of King David in this passage, it still leaves us wanting and longing for something better. Notice that in verse 3, we read this comment that uh, Mephibosheth is lame in both of his feet. And then the very end of this passage, it sort of tells us the exact same thing. And it leaves us maybe wondering, why in the world do they repeat, now he was lame in both his feet? That doesn't seem like a really good way to end a story, reminding us that he's lame in both of his feet. But what Liam Gallagher points out the author is doing here is showing that even in this encounter with King David, who was such an incredible, grace-filled king, even King David can't ultimately heal what's ailing Mephibosheth. But when we encounter Jesus Christ, not that, of course, he heals all of our diseases and infirmities, as we see in the Gospels, but what he does do is he heals our greatest infirmity, and that is our sin sickness. So whereas this passage may leave us wanting and longing for something else, When we turn forward in the pages of the Gospels and in the pages of the New Testament, we find that the truer king, King Jesus, meets our desperation head on, and he takes care of it, something that even David in all of his glory and splendor couldn't do. Jesus Christ has done and accomplished. And then this leads us to our final point. Third, grace leaves Mephibosheth, and it leaves us forever hungry for a king, for the true king. After this narrative closes, and we move on into the pages and the rest of the story of David and Mephibosheth and Ziba, 
David's life, like I said, takes a rather tragic turn. He commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He has her husband Uriah murdered. Then his one son, Amon, seduces his own sister, Tamar, and his other son, Absalom, murders Amon. I mean, this is like family drama that could rival the Kardashians, right? I mean, this is, this is incredible family drama. And then to top it all off, David's son, Absalom, conspires against his own father and stages a rebellion that forces David to flee Jerusalem. And it's during that flight, we learn in 2 Samuel 16, that Ziba the opportunist comes on the scene once again. As David's fleeing Jerusalem, as he's riding out of town on a donkey, Ziba rides up to him as well to show support for the king. And Ziba brings with him donkeys, loaves of bread, summer fruits, and wines. He brings with him the necessary sustenance for David's journey. But the question David asks in 2 Samuel 16 isn't, he doesn't say, hey, great, thank you for all of this stuff to sustain me. His first question is, Where's Mephibosheth? Did you bring with you Mephibosheth? And what Ziba tells us, which we learn later in 2 Samuel, is an absolute lie. Ziba says that um, he gives this false report that when David fled Jerusalem, Mephibosheth took advantage of the situation by taking the throne for himself. So David rides off, probably distraught, that the man he showed such incredible grace to uh, turned his back on him. Well, after David's son and enemies are defeated, David returns back to Jerusalem a few chapters after that in 2 Samuel 19, and David comes face to face with Mephibosheth. But now it's immediately clear that something was off in Mephibosheth or in Ziba's report of Mephibosheth, because we see that Mephibosheth is absolutely disheveled. He hasn't shaven. He looks unkempt. The text tells us that Mephibosheth had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until he came back in safety. So after a quick back and forth then, trying to get to the bottom of Ziba's false report and trying to clear the air, Mephibosheth admits that Ziba slandered his name, that Ziba didn't help him when he wanted to get out of Jerusalem and leave to be with David. So after Mephibosheth shows humility and deference and opens up about how he was wrong, David then reinstates part of the estate, half of the estate and the heritage back to Mephibosheth again. But then we come to this incredible text after David says, I'll give back the inheritance to you, half of the inheritance to you, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let Ziba take it all since my Lord and the king has come home safely. You see, the ideal outcome for Mephibosheth wasn't personal gain. It wasn't a boost to his own reputation or the reinstatement of his property. It was that the king had come home safely and Mephibosheth was once again in the presence of his king. Ziba was after property, but all Mephibosheth wanted was his lord and his king. Friends, what happens to our lives when they're turned upside down and inside out by the grace of our God? When we really understand grace, when we really see ourselves for who we are, not through the rose-colored lenses of self-righteousness that often blind us to our desperate need and our desperate standing, but when we really see ourselves as those who are meek and meager, who have nothing to stand upon except the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our longing 
And our desire, everything in us should want to be filled with the king, should want to be near to the king. That should be our longing and our desire because it's the king who pulls us out of the muck and mire. It's the king who restores our dignity and gives us honor. Why would we want anything else but the king, Jesus Christ? In conclusion then, in one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friends, what do you hunger for? What do you long for to quench your thirst? What do you hunger for more than anything else? Does the Lordship of Jesus Christ govern your most deep-seated desires? Do you love the King Jesus for who he is or only for what he gives you? These are some of the questions before us because when we really understand grace, communion with the king, being near to our God and our king transcends our desire for anything else because he is more excellent than anything else. When David invites Mephibosheth to dine with him perpetually forever, to feast with him, I can't remember exactly what's on the table, but imagine the biggest feast you can with wine and meats and cheeses and everything that would be on a table with a feast with the king. Well, the best thing about feasting with the king for Mephibosheth and the best thing about feasting with our king, our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't what's at the table, it's who's at the table. And it's that our Lord Jesus has summoned us He's called us out of our humble estate by grace, by mercy, and by compassion, and he's called us to feast with him. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have bought us with a price. You've called us to yourself, and you haven't done so reluctantly. You've done so joyfully with open arms, and you've invited us into this perpetual feast with our King. And Lord, at the same time, we look forward to the wedding supper between the King and his bride, the church. And we pray that in this already not yet, that you would help us as your people to long for being near to you, to want to be near to you more than anything else. And as we open up the scriptures in our, day, in our uh, times this week, at various points this week, Would that be our hunger? Would that be our sustenance? Would that be what we feed on? Because you are our sustenance. You are our inheritance. You are the best one that we could ever hope for or long for. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.